Last month I went to Solano State Prison to, to teach uh, mindfulness and recovery to a group of prisoners who are studying to be drug and alcohol counselors. Some of them are in prison for life and they're studying to be drug and alcohol counselors for other prisoners. The first thing I said to them was, you guys are an incredible inspiration and an example of the 12th step of realizing that your own spiritual growth only comes to fruition when you serve others, when you give it away. Step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to help other, other whatever, whatever program you're in, other alcoholics, other addicts, other codependents. Having had a spiritual awakening, what did we do? Did we float off on a cloud? Did we start a meditation center? Did we, well, I might do that. Did we, <laughs> did we just try to look really cool and get laid? You know? Well, there are some people who do that too, so. But in this, here in the steps, it's making this explicit connection between spiritual awakening and service. The fact that the spiritual awakening is not for you. We are part of something. When we think, if you can think of your life from a little further out, a little higher up, up in the sky, maybe you're off the planet a little bit, and see that there's generations of humans that arise and pass on this planet in waves, come and they go. The individuals are not that important, really. They're not the ones who really make the change. It will appear that certain individuals make the change. But I recall reading the Beatles saying, people looked at us like we were the ones who were making the 60s happen. But we were just reacting to what was happening. So a lot of times people who are leaders are really just the ones who are on the front of the wave. They're being pushed by the wave, by that whole wave of the, of the generation. And it's that collective movement that makes the evolution of human consciousness happen. And it's that collective movement towards service that makes the human consciousness evolve. Ajahn Sumedho, who is one of the most respected Buddhist monks in the world, and certainly the, probably the senior Western Buddhist monk, says, whenever I think about myself, I get depressed. <laughs> and he's, you know, been around doing this for a long time, you'd think he'd be able to think about himself now and then. But no. 
the big book, this isn't it, but it's got some of it in it. It says, selfishness, self-centeredness, that, we think, is the root of our troubles. Yeah. So, what's the cure? Giving it away. Daniel Goleman, in his book Emotional Intelligence, has a piece on depression. And in it, he starts by talking about the different treatments and the different things that help with depression. And at the end of the, this chapter, or this section of the book, almost as an afterthought, he says, actually, one of the most effective cures for depression is service, but very few people do it. It's kind of sad to me, very poignant. I remember reading that and thinking, once again, the 12 steps have built into them this elegance that just naturally, if we just do these steps, we naturally get healed. The way this is characterized in the Hindu tradition is that one of the ways is the bhakti path. Bhakti means devotion or love. And, and classically it's devotion to the guru. But the guru really just represents the divine principle. And this is an, another poem from Kabir. And uh, Kabir, he, he uses the, the word him to talk about God. Um, so uh, with that apology, I'll read the words as it's, as it's written. The bhakti path winds in a delicate way. On this path, there is no asking and no not asking. The ego simply disappears the moment you touch him. The joy of looking for him is so immense that you just dive in and coast around like a fish in the water. If anyone needs a head, the lover leaps up to offer his. Kabir's poems touch on the secrets of this bhakti. If anyone needs a head, the lover leaps up to offer his. Great image of service. And it's so, once again, just counterintuitive. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. Why would helping other people make me feel better? Shouldn't I be focusing on myself if I want to feel good? That only makes sense. This is why the spiritual path doesn't make sense. Just one of the many ways. And if you try to figure it out, you will wind up very frustrated and probably not very happy.
you know, the, the, one of the wonderful teachings from the Buddha was the Kalama Sutta, where, where people are asking him, this one village that was kind of on the crossroads and all the gurus of the time, and there were a lot in the Buddha's time, it was a flowering of, of spirituality, ancient India, all, all of them would pass through this area, and they'd each come and say the same thing that every teacher says, which is, my way is the best way. Don't listen to those others. Just do what I say. And after they heard this enough times, they you know, really were confused. And when the Buddha came through, they were like, okay, what's he going to tell us? And the Buddha said, don't listen to me. Don't listen to them. Do you have books? Don't, don't listen to the books. Do you have opinions? Don't listen to your opinions. Are you a logical, intelligent person? Don't listen to your logic. He said, try a practice. And if the practice brings good, if it's beneficial, then do it. And if not, then abandon it. Wasn't figuring it out. It, he, wasn't, he, he denied the idea that logic was a way to figure out, get spiritual answers. Not to say that the Buddha wasn't logical, which he was extremely logical in his own way, but that understanding that ultimately you might have insight through logic, but you will not have transformative insight through logic. You won't have a spiritual awakening through logic. So I wanted to talk about spiritual awakening because it was brought up this afternoon, uh, particularly the question of sudden awakening versus gradual awakening. And I think this is a, a false, false dichotomy. Um, the, when we hear sudden awakening, at least when I hear sudden awakening, or when I heard it, what I thought was magic. I'm, I'm just going to go and sit a little retreat, and I'm going to have this sudden experience that's going to be a lot like LSD, only free, and with no crash. And afterwards, I will be in this state in which I will be extremely attractive to everything, money, women, uh, record companies, uh, you know, it'll just be smooth sailing from there on. Sudden awakening and bam, problems are solved. Uh, as you've heard my story, you, you know, that has not been the case so far. Um, I'm still waiting for that sudden awakening. But in the when you read the texts and the stories of people who have had experiences, breakthrough experiences, um, there's a couple things we can say. One is that some people are karmically inclined to have a breakthrough experience without apparently doing a lot of work. Some people have these experiences, just they, they seem to happen 
out of out of thin air. Um, the Buddhist teaching and the Buddha's teaching is that everything happens as a result of karma. So although we don't see the causes, we know there were causes. If there weren't causes, then the law of karma doesn't work. And if you don't believe the law of karma doesn't works, then you don't believe in the teachings of the Buddha. Because they are the fundamental teaching. So a sudden awakening is really just a, um, a fruition that happens uh, without having seen the causes. Gradual Awakening, which was the title of um, Stephen Levine's first book, and one of my first Dharma books, A Gradual Awakening, um, I think is a more accurate description of what happens, even when people seem to have a sudden awakening. What's also apparent though, is that people who have sudden awakenings in this lifetime without any apparent preparation have a lot of work to do after that sudden awakening. The, the, spiritual, the spiritual experience when we talk about enlightenment, and as I talked somewhat about in the piece I read from my book this afternoon, um, can be a um, limited experience which doesn't actually touch the more earthly aspects of your life. So this is what Jack Kornfield's book, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry, is about. People who've had these breakthroughs but then have to spend years integrating their experience into a normal life. And and even uh, Eckhart Tolle's story of having this breakthrough moment that was followed by years of living on the street and being really confused about what had happened and having to kind of integrate it all into his life until years later it started to make sense and he was able to then present it and teach it. So, so I think that this, this kind of experience, uh, and particularly for addicts and alcoholics, is very attractive because it's got that same, it sounds like the same juice as our drug. That thing that you can just take it and you've got it and you're done. There's no work involved, no preparation. So like that kind of the, the supposed freedom or experience that comes through um, a drug, um, this kind of experience um, really is not, doesn't, ex- doesn't really work that way. So it's the delusion of a fix. So step 12, and goes on to say, after having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, tried to help other alcoholics, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Such a perfect summing up statement. I love it because it's kind of saying, if there's anything we missed, just do it. 
in everything. If we didn't cover something, just consider it. This is the, you know, the little uh, note at the bottom of the, the contract, you know, it's the small print. You know. oh, by the way, this applies to everything. <laughs> so don't think you're going to find some out. You know, it's all your affairs. And it's really the same teaching in, the, in Buddhism. Practice mindfulness in all your affairs. And as they say, what an order, I can't go through with it. We are not saints. So our practice is to find ways to be mindful in all our affairs, um, to be of service in all our affairs, to be loving in all our affairs, to be wise in all our affairs. So one of the uh, beautiful images that comes from Thich Nhat Hanh is the image of the mindfulness bell. So at his center, his monastery in, in France, Plum Village, there's a bell just like there is here in the center of the village. And at random times in the day, they just ring the bell and everyone stops and <coughs> takes three breaths or more. And this is a real thing, but it's also a metaphor. So our, I would say that our challenge is to find the mindfulness bells in our own lives. So I used to put on my screensaver one of those things that breathe or, you know, be present or something. And after about 15 minutes, I didn't see it anymore. So <laughs> it, that didn't work. If it works for you, great. Um, I get numbed pretty quickly. Um, what I have found has been my most effective mindfulness bell is, and I'm an aversive type, <laughs> suffering wakes me up fastest of all. So when I feel a painful emotion, <coughs> gets my attention. And now my habit is that when I feel a painful emotion is to go, let's sink into this pain. Let's suck it up. Let's get painful, you know. Let's just drench ourselves in pain so we can really... Because pain is so meaningful and it just it's who I am and it's soulful and maybe I'll be able to write a song about it later, you know. So that's not my practice anymore. Uh, my practice now is to feel the pain, as I talked about um, the other night, I hope. Uh, really, my memory is pitiful. Um, no, it wasn't the other night. It was when I gave the instructions on mindful, mindfulness of emotions. I knew I talked about it in this room. So, to use your emotions as a mindfulness bell, every time a strong emotion comes up, don't do anything. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to figure it out with your logic. Don't try to solve it. Just ding, breathe, feel. When you are feeling your emotion, 
you are present, you are here. So it brings you right back. And then you do your practice with it, right? Because then you bring in the, the impermanence, which means that you're bringing the Dharma in. So you're mindful now, but then you're also using that mindfulness to develop wisdom. You're seeing suffering, you're seeing impermanence. And if you look, if you keep looking, you will see that it's not you. So you will have seen the three characteristics. And it's stream entry, like I said in my book. You've had stream entry, just seeing those three, I hope. Other, uh, other mindfulness bells uh, are vows that I take. I take, take daily, daily vows around addiction triggers. So if there's a, an addictive behavior or mental, physical, emotional, verbal habit that I have that I want to break that addiction, I create a short list of triggers and then after my meditation in the morning, I recite a vow just for today. I take the vow to refrain from X, Y, Z. And then I list the specific things that are the triggers. And then during the day, when those things appear, ding, there's the bell. I breathe, I see it, I let go. If we don't see our triggers, the next step down the line is the arising of obsession. So there's a trigger, you feel it, and if you let it go at that level, there's freedom. If you don't, if you pursue it, if you allow the trigger to get under your skin, then you step into obsession. And when you get to obsession, you're now on the continuum to powerlessness. And where that kicks in, in your addiction, is dependent upon your addiction and your personality and your karma. For me, once obsession starts, I, I'm pretty much powerless. Certainly, when obsession reaches its peak, then it moves into compulsion. And at that point, you're done. You're, just, you're in the cycle. And the only way out is the, you know, you're going to get spit out the other side whenever that happens. So watching triggers is how I practice these principles in all my affairs, how I stay mindful on a daily basis. So the last thing I'd like to talk about and actually ask for your participation is the principles. Nowhere in the steps does it say, this is a principle of the 12 steps. This is a principle of recovery. This is a spiritual principle. That word only appears in the 12th step where it tells us that, or it implies that the steps embody a set of principles. So to end the talk, I would like you to call out the principles that you see in the 12 steps. So thank you. Just 
Uh, we'll call this popcorn. Honesty. Tolerance. Integrity. Not arming. Willingness. Come on. Responsibility. Faith. Perseverance. Service. Joy. Love. Trust. Accountability. Faith. Forgiveness. Passion. Patience. Understanding. Empathy. Courage. <coughs> Friendship. Mm. Selflessness. Non-judgment. Connection. Community. Serenity. Serenity. 